Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to a special edition of our Momenta Digital Thread Podcast, episode 200. Michael Dobeck and I could not think of a better person to celebrate this milestone than welcoming back Andrew Oben, Senior Multi-Industry Analyst, B of A Securities Equity Research. Andrew was one of our most popular podcast guests last year, discussing his multi-industry sector coverage, including Aspen, Carrier, Dover, Eaton, Emerson, GE, Johnson Controls, Rockwell Automation, and Train, and that's just to name a few. So since that discussion, Andrew and his team have published one of the most bullish trends and forecast research reports that we've seen in the industrial space. When coupled with similar sentiments shared by world leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos, We thought it warranted us bringing back Andrew. So, Andrew, welcome back to our Digital Thread podcast today. Well, thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's really good to engage on such a great topic. So to help set the context for this report, which hopefully will be out uh, public, at least in summary, by the time this podcast is published, can you tell us a little bit about the transformation world, the digital industry world series and the digital machinations theme? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So just understand, I work in an equity research department. So in equity research, we focus on fundamental stock picking, broader Bank of America research, focuses on macroeconomic analysis, as well as stocks and bonds. But obviously, big themes are also very important for investors. And we as an organization strive to be a global thought leader. And we have a number of themes that we focus on as research analysts was the idea to bring more focus to big picture themes for investors rather than just individual stock picking, right? Digital Machinations is a collaborative effort uh, with my global colleagues, particularly my industrial and software counterparts in Europe and Japan, bring unique insights as they cover key global competitors. And these reports really showcase the strength of global breadth and depth at B of A Global Research, and we are able to bring global insights together from the US, Europe, and Japan in this particular report. Digital machination thematic, this is me and my European colleague, Alex Burgo, really trying to do a deep dive on all things digital as they relate to industrial companies that are becoming more and more involved in software. And that's sort of the genesis of this report to give an investors an overview from a different angle, and we call it digital machination. So that's hopefully explains the genesis. Thanks, Andrew, and welcome once again. This is yeah. Mike Dolbeck. I don't think 200th would be bicentennial because that'd be 200 years, but it's an important milestone for us to have you on our podcast. You start the most recent chapter of this research with a bold statement that the return on invested capital equation has fundamentally shifted. What's this shift and what are the implications as you see them? Yeah, absolutely. So look, we think COVID in the post-COVID world, right? But remote work, supply chain disruption, inflation, 
All these factors really make companies to take a look at how they can drive production and productivity and efficiency, right? And in some cases, we have attended industry shows, right, where the key issue for the companies is simply getting the product out of the door. And software and digital threat implementation to gain efficiency, right, makes it easier to do it in this environment than simply get equipment. And you need to sweat the existing asset base more to sort of get the stuff out of the door. On top of it, I would sort of add the focus on ESG, and you guys definitely talked about it at the IoT Congress. But if you run your assets more efficiently, you cut emissions and energy consumption. And in Europe, energy shortage, right, you know, really drops, uh, drives investment in efficiency and, of course, materially increases paybacks on these investments, right? I think to bring it together, we think these investments, right, the payoff was there. But in the post-COVID constraints of the physical world, right, really brought the focus to what can be done to still get the product out of the door profitably, right? We also think that managements were able to understand better the value of digital in a more remote work environment and inflationary and supply pressures, right? All of this stuff improves buyback. Finally, I just want to add that we're probably entering a world that is just going to be more growth in the industrial world, right? And we'll talk about the drivers of the growth later, but it really also means more need for working capital and assets, which also put pressure on returns. So the companies really have to put all these pieces of the puzzle together to offset that, and hence, we think the newfound focus on return on capital. A, so think about it, new constraints in the post-COVID world, right? Uh, Changing cost structure, really driving payback and a lot of these investment initiatives. And finally, I would say more growth equals more investment, but shareholders still want good returns. So you have to figure out how to get this product out of the door, more product, more efficiently. Super. Thank you. To me, it summarizes as the imperative to produce and become more efficient never goes away. But there's a new set of opportunities and companies themselves are figuring out how to exploit the tools available to their advantage and take advantage of the opportunity as well. Exactly. You know, uh, the cornerstone of our conversation today will be really five key trends. And Mike will get to that in a minute. But I wanted to kind of, I guess, uh, early on, just have a here's the good news conversation. So as a result of the shift you just mentioned, you update your State of the Union outlining that automation demand is accelerating. Can you say a little bit about what those forecast growth rates will look like because of this demand accelerating? Yeah, sure. So a couple of things. So there is a software and the hardware component. Let's start with the hardware. So automation spend, particularly in the West, has really been a function of OPEX right, which is in the U.S. is now becoming growth capex for the first time in decades as we start to expand capacity to sort of accommodate onshoring, right? So we see automation stand having picked up from roughly 4% to mid-teens over the past couple of years. And as I said, in the West, the drivers, they need to add capacity as global supply chains fracture and undergo transition, driving need for capex acceleration. Of course, out in China, what drives CapEx is also the need for Chinese economy to transition, to up their game as stuff is moving out of China, more commoditized stuff to move into more value-add industries. For software, if you take a look over the past almost 10, 20 years, you had the 7 to 8% growth fairly consistently. 
So this is accelerating and it's what I have described. It's easier to do than CapEx, particularly in this environment. Transition to SaaS is accelerating the span. And what will be interesting to see is that those who get it right will absolutely enjoy accelerating growth, while more traditional players who fail to make the transition will see decelerated growth, if any at all. So you put it all together and we think that on the software side, A, the underlying industry spend is accelerating, but we think we could almost double the growth rate to mid-teens for a sustainable number of years. And finally, I would also add another lever here is that we've done some work sort of looking at the wage inflation driving automation spending. And of course, when I talk about adding capacity, we're not sort of talking about the fact that there's less labor and it's a lot more expensive. And historically, we've done work that shows a very, very tight correlation just between labor inflation and investment in automation, which is both hardware and software. And we're saying it's just you just layered on top of the factors that I've just described. Excellent. Thanks, Andrew. Let's get to the meat of the five key trends that you've outlined in this report that so interests us. And have you summarize each of these points. I'll, I'll kind of tick them off, have you dive into them, and then we'll keep going. So the first key trend you outline is U.S. reshoring, nearshoring. Is it really different this time? Yeah, we actually absolutely think that, right? So if you go and if you look back, you know, U.S. CapEx has really grown at 2.8% over the past cycle. And tech has been the biggest driver of U.S. industrialization over the past 20 years. So from that perspective, we really keep bringing up semiconductor investment, right? And we think it really moves the needle. And specifically, we look at second and third order effects on the supply chain, right? So the way you should be thinking about it, you have 120 billion of announced semiconductor spend in the US over the next several years. And we've published literally, you can look up the permits, you can see when they're going to start digging the hole, you can figure when they're going to start moving equipment in, right? So from that perspective, that's real, but you should be thinking it's $120 billion of spend on a $500 billion CapEx spent base. So just if you do basic math, right, tech moving offshore, incremental capacity going to Asia over the past 20 years has been the single biggest driver of slowdown and decline in US manufacturing. And it's coming back, coming back for national security reasons, but it is coming back. And one of the most interesting data points that we see is the U.S. Census data on construction spent on computer and electronics manufacturing. And it is now running at two times the spent that we have seen in the last 25 years. So this is the U.S. Census data. People often ask us, what do you see? What's interesting is that the construction data is absolutely starting to reflect it. Another data point, this is the first time in several decades that manufacturing employment in the U.S. has actually fully recovered after a downturn. So, and finally, I would just throw in it the IRA. We've done work. We think people don't quite appreciate that it is part of the U.S. industrial policy to build out world-leading decarbonization industry. And you put these facts and these trends together, and that's why we think it's very different, right? It's bringing back semiconductor capacity in the U.S. and for companies in my coverage, as I said, second and third order impact. That's what's really important. 
and IRA spending, the government spending, mm-hmm. and the data is starting to show that all of this is really moving the needle in the real time. Thank you. Yeah, wow. So just to put a point on it, I think you cite the most obvious trend is the semiconductor manufacturing trend, but I think you're saying it's not limited to people that participate in that ecosystem, but might also include lots of other things that manufacturers yeah, I'll, I'll are give, I'll, associated I'll give you an example. With. Yeah, I'll give you an example. We were at an industry show in Chicago, and we met at the company that makes industrial degreasers. So if you make all things metal, right, in order to reduce the heat, you sort of soak it with oil as you cut it. And we met with a gentleman who sells industrial degreasers for a large industrial conglomerate. And he basically was telling us, you know, gentleman was probably in his late 50s. And he basically told us, like, the demand for industrial degreasers has been the strongest it's been in 20 years. And you would not think industrial degreasers connecting to semis, but right, if you think about the entire value chain, there is a place for a piece of equipment like industrial degreaser there, right? Something very prosaic, not very high tech, right? But that's what we're talking about here. Excellent. Thanks. Let's move on to the second trend that you cite from industrial greasers to a different topic, but it's related. Your point on this trend is uh, industrial software, and you call coined this term, it's turning sassy. Can you unpack that one a little bit more for us? Yeah. So what we have been seeing, and reckon you guys know, that industrials lag overall sort of enterprise software market by maybe a decade. Just a little bit, yes. Yeah. We've seen the shift from on-prem to subscription, then cloud-hosted offerings, and then, you know, we're starting to undergo the shift to true SaaS. Data and analytics software, just look at pieces, really helped by enterprise software and shift to the cloud, right? And what you see there, cloud players really bring their scale and capabilities to the industrial vertical. Another key market is PLM. And we think PLM growth is more tied to the broader CapEx cycle. And the trend we describe, the need to do more with constrained resources. And I think what drove the embrace of SaaS is COVID, right? Because it was a material catalyst as to how management think about investment. And we've heard a lot of anecdotes, senior management, right? You finally could explain to them the value of remote work, right? The fact that you didn't have to go and install this piece of software manually. So we think there really has been this change in thinking at the top of the companies sort of helping to drive this change and more willingness by traditionally conservative industrial players embraced SaaS, right? A, the technology has matured, right? And you have sort of more traditional players really going after this market, but also for more sort of traditional pieces of software like PLM, right? There's this understanding as to what the value of SaaS is in the post-COVID world. Yes, great. It seems like the major software vendors have figured out how to change their business model and offer things on a subscription basis. But also you're saying the major consumers of industrial software are becoming more comfortable, thanks to COVID and other factors, at uh, consuming it on a subscription basis as well, which in various industries hasn't always been the case. So I think certainly all the startups that we deal with would almost always prefer to sell things on a subscription basis. But their customers aren't always ready for it. And it seems like things are warming up and heading in their favor in terms of business conditions. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, okay. The next point is interesting to us. It's titled in your report, IT versus OT or IT plus OT, the rise of the cloud vendors. Can you detail that a little bit more? Oh, absolutely. You see companies like AWS and Azure building out the ecosystem. You see investment in capabilities. And of course, as software model shifts more from on-prem to cloud, the addressable TAM for the hyperscalers is starting to be material. And the markets, as you know, puts a very different multiple on traditional software versus subscription and SaaS. So in terms of market value creation by going after these complicated markets, right, industrial vertical is becoming a lot more important, not just the source of cloud usage, right? And I think that's the way folks have viewed the role of AWS and Azure in these markets, right? But all of a sudden, it's a market that it's important in its own right as the SaaS TAM keeps growing, right? Our conversations indicate that I would say industrial companies still view traditional automation players as having a lot of domain expertise and understanding what is happening on the actual factory floor. And these companies are clearly not standing still, investing in partnerships, capabilities, partnering actually with the hyperscalers. But you absolutely see hyperscalers advancing slowly and steadily, right? And they bring real resources to develop the domain expertise and figure how to develop the right relationships in the industrial space, right? At the IoT forum in Barcelona, it was very interesting. You go to the AWS booth and you absolutely see a mix of people who have grown up, right, inside these companies and understand the cloud infrastructure. But then you see these new hires, right, with gray hair and years and years of experience in the industry. I would also say what really struck me is that we're still figuring out some very basic stuff, right? And designs that win and get tractions in the market are sometimes pretty straightforward, right? Nothing overcomplicated, but they solve a very real issue today for a real customer. But as I said, I think it all goes back fundamentally, right? As the industry is embracing SaaS, you know, traditional cloud players absolutely understand that market. Initially, maybe they did not have a lot of domain expertise, but they're building out either through partnerships or by actually going out and hiring players who really know the industry. And it was like absolutely fascinating to watch. Yes, yes we've noticed the quality of people at the hyperscalers who have both cloud experience, but very importantly, industry experience. And they're able to, they have simpatico with what industrial customers deal with and want to achieve. The quality of the executives risen quite a bit. And the hyperscalers have been very generous at trying to sponsor some of the portfolio companies that we have. In fact, at least several of them were present in that AWS booth at the conference that you cited. As part of the attempt to pull together a suite of value for larger customers to take advantage of in their cloud. Yeah, when I was referring to the company having a very simple solution, but sort of tying itself to a cloud vendor, I was actually referring to one of your portfolio companies. But it's exactly right. It's a simple solution. You put it on the cloud, and all of a sudden, you can do way more than just a piece of hardware. Yes. Perhaps you're referring to Shoreline IoT, which Correct. I know was, was at the conference. It, 
AWS does a really good job of pulling together on the surface, looks like a point product, but when it's part of the hyperscaler story, they help the customer understand, okay, this is the on-ramp to the rest of our value that comes later after you drive up onto the on-ramp. Let's keep moving, Andrew. There's a couple of more trends that, that I want to hit. The next one is also close to our hearts. You describe uh, robots as an inflation beater, which they're not often mentioned in those terms. So I'd like to hear more about that too, please. Absolutely. And a lot of this work, just want to make sure credit is where it's due, is done by my European and Japanese colleagues, right? Because this is where the robot manufacturers, publicly traded ones, ah, uh, I see. live. But when we were at, I'll just keep referring to IMTS back in September, one of the most interesting commentaries was that robotics was simply about being able to get about product out of the door. So before it's an inflation beater, it's becoming a necessity uh, given the labor constraints in the market, right? Just general shortage of qualified manufacturing labor, inflation and ongoing retirement of older workforce, which take with them a lot of shop floor expertise. So that's part of it. But on top of it, wages are going up and robot costs are going down over the past 15 years. Price of robots has been declining roughly 2% CAGR, while the wages have been increasing at 2% plus. And this is sort of not really taking full account of what's happened post-COVID, right? And we did have this material acceleration in the past two years, and the price reduction statistics also do not take into account improvement in capabilities, right? Now, globally, 23 could be a soft patch, semi-spending, consumer electronics, right? The traditional users of robotics is under pressure. U.S., and I am more U.S.-centric, obviously, likely to be a more positive market in 22, right? We've seen robotic orders in the U.S. were up 50% from the pre-COVID levels. China is its own market and a key driver of global growth overall. The report we're talking about is a global report. So this is an instance of much more global perspective that sort of bring. But U.S., we think, is a very interesting case. It barely makes it to top 10 in terms of robot units density with Korea and Singapore as global leaders in terms of annual installation. China is five times bigger than the number two player than Japan, an absolute number of robots. But U.S. is the number three just to sheer size of the economy. And I just want to bring it back. A, you know, clearly we have this, uh, right, robotics cost keeps declining, wages keep going up. And it goes back, we spent some time in the report describing the connection between wage inflation and investment in automation. And, you know, just appreciate the U.S. industry is just not that automated, right? You have this vision of robots on the assembly line. The penetration is still quite low. And our view, historically, there has been a very tight correlation between labor inflation and investment automation, and we think specifically in the U.S., the labor constraints in the market, right, are going to drive this investment in the robotics. History tells you there is a two-year lag. So in a way, okay. what's going to happen 23, 24, the cake has been baked two years ago. If I understand correctly, you're tying this trend, trend number four, robots as a way to attack wage inflation to trend number two that sorry, trend number one, the U.S. reshoring combined with the global trends, you think robotics unit growth will start to happen in the U.S. 
further than it already is. That's exactly that's exactly right. Or expanded outside of the automotive industry where it's most present. That's right. But all of these trends are obviously very interconnected. Yeah, they're connected in dotted lines in many interesting ways. The next one is connects everything in some sense. But the last trend that we wanted to talk about was, well, it's titled supply chains, flexibility versus efficiency. But I think what you mean is that everybody became much more aware of their supply chain and sensitive to it being interrupted because of various macro factors. How do you see what happened as a trend that influences other things? Yeah, no, you nailed it, right? And I think what is interesting is that a lot of this really comes from the boardrooms, from the corporate boardrooms. Over the past 15, 20 years, corporates were really focusing on costs, right? But at the same time, what it did, it disregarded risk, right, as supply chain got longer and longer and became more concentrated. And also longer lead times, people don't think about it. And a lot more working capital got tied up. Now, it didn't get tied up at the corporate level. You sort of outsource it. But throughout the supply chain, elongated supply chains, right, and longer lead times do mean quite a bit more working capital uh, being tied up. So there's a lot of talk about rising costs as we shatter these global supply chains. And in some cases, like semiconductors, it probably, this argument makes a lot more sense, albeit, right, the reason we're doing it are probably national security considerations. But I want to say that boards have also rationally decided that volatility and uncertainty are costs of doing the business with these extended global supply chains. And there is now focus on minimizing the tail risk. And I think that's what we're trying to sort of talk about, sort of flexibility versus efficiency, because I think it turned out what we thought was efficient under stress turned out not to be as efficient. And there is this desire for flexibility to sort of improve the resiliency of the supply chains. Almost a a cyclic equation going between centralized and decentralized, (laughs) much like a lot of corporate reorgs that I've been at as well, but certainly applicable to global supply chains. So, you know, we heard aligned perspectives at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, you know, with discussions of resilience, reshoring, renewables, tempered, of course, with discussions of trade wars, deglobalization, the global response to the U.S. IRA or Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera. One of the day one sessions captured, I think, well, the sentiment with its title, The Future of Industrial Policy. And in fact, I remember one of the panelists saying, who would have thought even a couple of years ago that we'd be on the stage at Davos talking about industrial policy, right? So to what degree do you think such industrial policy may affect your forecasts? Oh, it's absolutely a key driver. This is a great question, right? Here are the big drivers. First, semiconductor investment would not have happened without concerns about national security, right? I think this is one sector that if you look, right, these global supply chains at scale really brought a lot of efficiency. You know, you start looking at it from a national security angle, and maybe you have very different consideration. And as I said, semiconductor, in our view, near term at least, is the single largest driver of investment in the U.S. and to some degree in Europe as well, right? And then, of course, you have Inflation Reduction Act, 
And what we have written is that the way to think about it is it is really the U.S. trying to build world-leading decarbonization industry. And I think the view there that after the world financial crisis, right, the U.S. has missed the boat on solar and battery storage, right? You look where the technology is, you look where the manufacturing capacity is, right? It's all outside of the U.S. and a lot of it is in China. Having missed that, I think what the administration is trying to do, right, was to focus on hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, right? What's interesting about it, if you think about it, the companies that are engaged in these activities, both on the, as technology providers and consumers, a lot of this old economy companies. And I think there is very much a desire there to use the existing scale to build out world-leading decarbonization capability. And, you know, frankly, if you look at the headlines, there was concern in Europe about this. And I think the Europeans have figured it out that this is, in fact, U.S. trying to build decarbonization industry at scale. And because, as I said, the technology providers are existing companies, right? And because the consumers of the technology, they need to consume it, right? Because of the ESG requirements, uh, existing companies in the U.S., you put it together and you have scale, you have government support. And so we think actually there's a lot of focus on building, green buildings and energy efficiency. To us, the trend that really impacts more traditional industrial companies, and I think you're going to see more sort of read across on the software side, is this desire to have world-leading decarbonization industry. And there's no reason why U.S. will not succeed, actually. And I'll just use another example. Biopharma, right? I had a very interesting conversation in Barcelona, and it's about the fact that during COVID, we've discovered that we no longer manufacture some very basic drugs or some very basic components, and it's just need to double source. And once again, it's not really about efficiency, right? In the ideal world, this works, but COVID has shown some countries, for example, restricting the exports of basic drugs because their own people needed those drugs. You can completely understand that. So I think these are three areas, semiconductors, decarbonization industry built out through IRA and biopharma, Right, I think these are three very interesting examples that are absolutely driven by post-COVID industrial policy. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Just popping up, maybe popping up to a macro level, I think my final question refers back to some of the conversations that we heard uh, swirling around Davos. And in general, there's a lot of concern over the global economy fragmenting. It seems that many things are in flux. The creating redundancies, manufacturing, and supply chains as many countries, not just the U.S., of course, that's one of our big concerns, but many countries seek to create more local and resilient sourcing. Do you share that concern? Do you see the industrial companies that you follow able to play that trend? Yeah, look, I think I have alluded to that before. And you guys, I think, said that it is part of this cycle, right? This corporate cycle. Part of it, I think it's a complicated answer, right? I think in case of semiconductors, you know, what do you do with a national security concern, right? How do you address that short of what's being done? Another example I'll give you, right? Post-COVID, we can't make cars, right? 
automotive industry, huge source of employment, the US and Europe, and the auto industry is all gummed up because the supply chain sort of cracked under pressure. It worked great pre-COVID, doesn't work so well after COVID, right? So I think, right, there is clearly a lot of political rhetoric here, but part of it is also rationally addressing the tail risk of disruption that we simply didn't think about COVID. And as I said, the world is changing and we're back to thinking about national security concerns and it's part of it. You know, and also I wouldn't sort of underestimate the amount of hype, right, uh, that there is about it because these supply chains are efficient and in places where they create value, they will continue to create value. So I think it's a more, for me, it's a more of a mixed and I think complex picture. I don't think it's sort of as simplistic as what we had was great and what we're having is now is more of a negative. You know, look, I think the real world is quite a bit more complex than that. No doubt. No doubt. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, in some sense, it kind of goes back to the, well, maybe a macro feeder for the whole conversation. That is the duplication of supply chains and manufacturing efforts under reshoring movements are naturally going to create more investment, more industrial policy, and thus result in an uptick in the overall industry. So I think it was the CEO of BlackRock who talked about the decade-long trend. What did he call it? He called it the deflationary dividend in the sense that globalization created effectively deflation. And now as deglobalization you know, takes place in, in part or whole, you're seeing inflation being driven up because costs are going to be higher because more infra- infrastructure spending. So in some sense, it does make sense as a meta cycle if you want to think about it in terms of that. Look, one final question. I know, you know, we were all together in uh, Barcelona and of course we kicked off the uh, Industry 5 Fund. We had Sean O'Regan from the EU Commission talking about Industry 5 in the keynote. So what's your general perspective when you think of Industry 4, Industry 5 and their impact as a, call it, guiding hand to everything we're talking about? I think you guys were on stage and you were talking about doing well by doing good. And I completely buy into that, right? Because the investments in automation, software, and efficiency, right? The harder you sweat the assets, the less electricity you consume, right? The less you emit, less CO2. So, you know, making the world a more efficient place is completely compatible with the goals of more efficiency and being more green go hand in hand. I remember I had a bunch in California. It was a founder of a company that sort of targets oil and gas industry. And, you know, the guy sort of brought up this fact. He said, I'm shocked. He was sort of talking about fracking. And he said, if you look sort of how much good has come out of fracking, right, in terms of lower energy costs, efficiency, and how much thought the industry has put into it, yet the industry cannot explain it, right? I mean, in a way, They cannot explain that these more efficient ways of sort of lifting oil out of the ground are good for the environment. And it was a very different, you know, I never thought about it, right? But I think you have people sort of stuck with this view that this is good and this is bad. But to me, for example, companies in petrochemical industry, as we look at it, right, they can be the greenest companies in the world, right, as we go to net zero, reduction of carbon emission. Why? 
because they can do the most, right? And if you think about how companies are measured on ESG, right, it's not where you are, but it's where you're coming from and where you're going. And for me, actually, what's very interesting is it's the traditional industries that offer the most opportunity for saving. And a lot of this opportunity simply comes from being more efficient and embracing modern technology. And I think there's a lot of irony there. And I think both sides probably should see better eye to eye because I think there's a lot more room for cooperation and arriving at a win-win outcome where we have more efficient industry and much greener environment and everybody's happier. So I think that's sort of my answer. Well said, uh, Andrew. Impressed. I should have had you on the stage. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today for this milestone episode that we've done. Any closing thoughts, Andrew? No, look, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I learn a lot from, you know, folks at Momentum. I'm a huge fan of your podcast series. And thank you so much for having me on. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you to you, Mike. So this has been Andrew Oben, Senior Multi-Industry Analyst, B of A Securities Equity Research. Thank you for listening. And please join us for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.